Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.26 a.m. Central Standard Time. It is the, what, the 9th of February, 2022. This is episode 542 of Bitcoin, and apparently the Canadian government is leaving boxes of rocks around the streets of Ottawa, I guess. I don't know. I haven't seen it myself. But our friend Rothmus, at Rothmus, R-O-T-H-M-U-S, uh, tweeted out today a picture of a huge container full of busted up concrete rocks sitting on the street by what appears to be a whole bunch of uh, semi-trucks. Now, I, like I said, I don't know. I have no clue if this is actually true or not. It would be nice if we could get some further confirmation of this. But let's just assume for the moment that it's 100% true that the Ottawan government, city government, is leaving these, you know, and and we're not, when I mean box of rocks, I I, I don't mean a cardboard box. You know, I, no, no, I mean like one of those trash containers that have an open top that you see, you know, that you, you throw a whole bunch of concrete in and you haul it away and it costs you like 400 bucks to do it. No, it's a big container. It holds a lot of rocks. We're talking about probably a couple of tons minimum of great big broken cement rocks. So let's say it's true. Let's say this is absolutely 100% actually happening. Where have we seen this before? We've seen pallets of bricks left in highly flammable areas. And by flammable, I mean like, you know, shit's about to set on fire. Uh, in the United States on several occasions around cities that were going to go, they were going to riot and pallets of bricks were just dropped off. We, we saw that before. This looks very, very similar. Now here's the thing of all the people in the world to do this next to truckers, probably not the people to do it. Why? Because them motherfuckers have, tarps and what's called a come along, which is like those great big yellow and red and blue nylon straps that you can put a tarp over something and strap it down and lock that motherfucker up. I'm telling you, man, this is like of all the people in the world that know how to deal with a container load of concrete bricks and rocks and shit, truckers are the guys. Those are the people that hauled this shit in the first place. They have all the gear to secure it. So I, if this is true, the funniest thing in the world that could possibly happen at this point is the truckers grab a tarp, grab some come-alongs, go ahead and, and strap those things down. That would be hilarious. I would love to see that. 
Now, another uh, notable mention here is Bass underscore zero two, B-A-S underscore the number zero, the number two. Actually, zero is not a number, but it's a placeholder in case you, in case you were wondering, zero is not actually a number, but it is the actual number zero for Bass underscore zero two. He told me about, I was bitching and moaning because I was looking for, I don't know, I wanted to like watch something for lunch and I was just, I'm getting to the point now where all I really care about is soil, farming, ranching, pasture land, roots, mycorrhizal fungi, water capacity, biochar, you, you name it, man, photosynthesis. This is all I care about. So I'm on Amazon Prime. And actually, first I went to Netflix. Or no, no. Ne- okay, first I went to Netflix. And there were like, you know, two things on soil that I had already watched. And one of them was with Woody Harrelson. And I think it was Kiss the Ground, which is not bad. Woody does a pretty good job narrating that particular documentary. And then there was another one. So I already seen it, but there wasn't anything there. So I go over to Amazon Prime. I'm looking around and there's a shit ton of stuff about soil, farming, all kinds of stuff. And guess what? You have to rent them all. Even if you have Amazon Prime, you can, there's Kiss the Ground, you can watch for free. And then I think their other one is Farmland, which both of those are good. And you can watch both of those. But there are, I went through 20 different, like whether it was soil whether it was farming, whether it was agriculture, I mean, anything. And you ha- even if you had Amazon Prime, you had to rent that. It called into question, why? Why would I have to rent these things? I mean, it's not like this is something that's going to, you know, make Amazon a whole buttload of money. So my conspiratorial mind goes off. And of course, I come up with the fact, well, they just don't want you to know. They're part of the establishment. Uh, and Amazon just, they really, they really want to put the gates up. Now, is that true? Hell, I don't know. But, you know, every once in a while, you got to wear the tinfoil hat. Otherwise, this crazy ass clown world is just no fun whatsoever, right? Anyway, <clears throat> one of the things that I got back through Twitter was from Bass underscore O2. And he said that I should probably look at Clarkson's farm. It's a, it's a series, and I think it's in its third season, something like that, or it, or it has three seasons. And I, I kind of looked at, you know, looked at the thing, and I just like, I'd seen Clarkson Farm, but it wasn't until Bass told me, you know what, you should look at Clarkson's Farm. I'm like, okay, well, if, if I get somebody who I've known as long as Bass, and I've known him since the lightning torch days, and Hodel and not getting served papers by that clown, Craig Wright, that's how long I've known Bass, right? So I trust him. So I go and I pop up the first uh, the first episode of Clarkson's Farm, and lo and behold, it's Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear, because he doesn't do Top Gear anymore. I don't I don't know if Top Gear is actually even being recorded at this point, but Jeremy's one of my favorite people. I had no clue. So what Jeremy has done is he retired from doing Top Gear. And he has owned a farm and it's like a thousand acres in the English countryside and it's fucking gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. He has no idea how to farm and neither do I. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not saying anything bad here. I'm just saying if you were interested 
in getting into farming and what does it actually kind of look like when somebody who's a complete noob doesn't know dick about farming or soil or ranching or lambing or sheeping or tractoring or any of that shit. This show is perfect for you. Why? Because he goes through and makes every mistake that you could possibly make as a newbie farmer from buying the wrong kind of tractor to not knowing how, you know, how implements are put up to having, he bought a tractor with the wrong, with the wrong hitch. It, he didn't, it didn't have a three point hitch on it with a power takeoff. It had a power takeoff, but it was a completely different kind of hitch. He needed a three point hitch and he didn't have it on the tractor, but he had no clue. So he had to buy another hitch. And it goes through what runs through a lot of numbers, like how much does this shit cost? How much, how much fertilizer do you need? How many seeds do you need? What happens if you store your seeds in a moist environment? Well, they start fucking sprouting and you can't plant them. And he discovers all this one thing after another, after another, after another. And like the first season is just him trying to figure out how to cultivate the soil so that he can then go and plant it with a seed drill. And he has no clue how to do it. And he's continuously having to hire these people who do know how to do things on the farm. And he then like the second season or the second episode, he decides that he wants to uh, keep some pasture land uh, from having, he doesn't want to have to mow it. So he decides that he's going to get 80 sheep and he has never dealt with sheep before. Neither have I. And, but I have read many, many books and many, many books and all the people that, that I listen to on podcasts say the same thing about sheep. They somehow will try anything they can to kill themselves. And Jeremy finds out within the first week about what that actually means. They, they end up with some, some of them end up with some hoof disease and he's like, what the fuck, man? Was like, these things are like the sickly, sickliest things I've ever seen. He doesn't know how to move them. He doesn't have a sheep dog. He's not a shepherd. So it goes through all that. It, but he does it in a way that is not heart-wrenching. Because there's a lot of farming, you know, documentaries, people that are getting into farming. And it's just gut-wrenching to watch these people figure out how hard this shit is. Jeremy can do it because of a couple of things. One, he made an awful lot of money through his career. Two, everything that he buys for this farm, because he's actually producing a television show that is syndicated, or well, not maybe it's not syndicated, but it's on network, okay? It's not a YouTube channel. This is a professionally done thing, and it is being broadcast, I believe, out of the BBC, probably. And then it's, well, no, it is syndicated because it got picked up by Amazon Prime. So that's a, an example of syndication. In either event, all of this shit, he doesn't actually, if he, if he did it right, he's not using his own money. He's using investor money and all of it can be written off of, his ta- off of the taxes of the farm. Not only because it's bought for the farm, but also he's making a television show and he can make these mistakes and it doesn't kill him. The the mistakes that he's making would destroy any newbie farmer that you would find. So 
my recommendation is go watch Clark Clarkson's farm if you are at all interested in what it looks like for somebody who doesn't know dick about farming to decide that he wants to go buy a farm. All right, so that's going to be the last I say about that. Now, Bitfinex hack recovery spurs the crypto community to response. Ezra Reguera has it for Cointelegraph. On February the 1st, there were movements of around $2.5 billion from the 2016 Bitfinex hack wallet. After reviewing the transactions, Cointelegraph reported that around 90,000 Bitcoin were $3.6 billion consolidated into one single wallet address. More than a week later, hackers were caught. Yeah, right. We'll get into why I think that's bullshit here in a second. The United States Department of Justice seized $3.6 billion in crypto and arrested two suspects connected with the 2016 hack. Alleged hackers Ilya Lichtenstein and Heather Morgan were apprehended after federal authorities exercised their ability to, quote, follow the money through the blockchain, according to the Department of Justice. While some of the funds were partially recovered back in 2019, the most recent recovery shocked the community, as many didn't think it would be possible to retrieve the funds after five years. Following this, the crypto community responded with diverse sentiment. Emin Gunn Sirir, or however you pronounce that idiot's name, and he is an idiot, by the way, founder of Ava Labs, thinks that Morgan, whose middle name is Rehan, a common name in Turkey, may have a Turkish background, making her one of the richest Turks for some time. He also praised the authorities for recovering the funds. Binance CEO CZ raised two questions related to the recovery of the funds. He tweeted, quote, did Bitfinex lose or make money from this hack? He added, if they get the BTC back, how should they split that with the Leo holders or the people who took a loss to accept Leo at the time of the hack and then sold Leo? Crypto banter host Ryan Neuer, oh, Neuner, uh, Ran, sorry, not Ryan, Ran Neuner, or also known as at crypto ran or crypto man ran. He's, he's part of the CNBC crew from South Africa, I believe. And he is a shit coiner extraordinaire. Take everything this motherfucker says with a grain of salt. Anyway, crypto banter host ran Nooner may have an answer to the question. According to Nooner's tweet, the hack may be the best trade ever made. And here's the tweet. The Bitfinex hack was the best trade ever. 119,000 Bitcoin was stolen in 2017. Value, 76 million. Bitfinex repaid the victims the USD equivalent, 60 or 76 million, over time through a recovery token. Bitfinex gets 3.6 billion five and a half years later. Borrow 76 million, repay it slowly, get 6.5 billion, five and a half years. Okay, I'm, I'm going to have to agree with Ran on this one because he's, he's not wrong. Jack Newold, founder of Crypto Pragmatist, believes that this has enormous implications for BTC and Leo with selling methods like TWAP, T-W-A-P, <clears throat> TWAP, as well as OTC deals. It's likely that it doesn't affect the BTC markets too much, but $4 billion is a decent chunk, he wrote. Crypto entrepreneur Anthony Pompliano expressed his disbelief over who the perpetrators were. Pomp's tweet says, one of the Bitfinex hackers was verified on Twitter and wrote articles for Forbes. Unreal. 
Uh, that's the end of the article, and it doesn't actually go into anything that needs to be gone into, so I'll do it right here. If any of you believe that these two idiots were the actual physical hackers of the 2016 Bitfinex hack, I have bridges in Arizona that I would love to unload on your ass because you're clearly too stupid to breathe. These two idiots have nothing to do with the hack other than the fact that somehow they were in possession. As far as the DOJ says, they were in possession of the hacked coins. They did not hack these coins. Somebody else hacked these coins and somehow or another, these two idiots got a hold of those coins. I think it was probably a situation where these guys know a whole shit ton of people and one of the hacker reached out to them and said, I kind of need you to launder the money. Something along those lines, but it appears that they've been in possession of these coins for quite some time. So it begs the question, what happened to the actual hacker? Who is the actual hacker? Because it's not, it's not Morgan. It's not Liechtenstein. It's not those two. Have you seen any one of their tweets or their videos that they make? They're idiots. They're just straight up idiots, except for the fact that the one thing that they're not idiotic about is how to scam people. I won't get into just how awful some of these videos and Morgan's raps and some of their TikToks is just, it's really bad. It's really, really bad, which goes to show just how many idiots exist in the world because they were just taking people to the bank even without hacking their goddamn coins, right? So <clears throat> the other thing that I wonder about here is, well, Bitfinex. Do I think Bitfinex hacked themselves? No, not really, although I could be proven wrong, but there was a lot of chatter yesterday about, oh, the DOJ is going to dump, you know, uh, this, this 90,000 Bitcoin onto the open market and sell it. No, they're not. It's not their property. It's not the property of the DOJ. The DOJ seized it, but it is clearly stolen property. We know it belonged to Bitfinex. We know that it is international stolen property, and it does belong to Bitfinex. Those coins are not going to be sold on the open market because if they were, the International Criminal Court in The Hague gets involved. The DOJ is not going to do this. And if they, but, okay, well, if they do, if they were to seize the Bitcoin, not give it back to Bitfinex, sell it on the open market, the amount of shit that that's going to cause for the Department of Justice and the United States government is going to be so thick and so deep and so long lasting that I can guarantee you that the agents at the DOJ are saying, no, this shit goes back to Bitfinex. So it'll be interesting to see how, when, and if all of the coin is actually delivered back to Bitfinex. That's going to be a good story right there. But as far as these two idiots are concerned, these two idiots are the least likely two idiots to have actually perpetrated the hack. There's no way. I guarantee you it's 100% impossible that Lichtenstein and Morgan had anything to do with the actual hacking of Bitfinex. They're not that bright.
The only thing that they know how to do is how to scam people. And the fact that Morgan was writing for Forbes and Inc. magazine should tell you something about publications in general at this point. The mainstream media will pick up anything that they can, have anybody write for them if they write the shit that they want them to write, which generally speaking would probably be about how Russia's bad and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I would take Forbes and Inc. Magazine as well as The Economist with multiple grains of salt. Now, Compute North, they raised $385 million in capital growth round. Nomsios Bitcoin Magazine, computing infrastructure provider Compute North, closed its next growth capital round of $385 million, comprising $85 million in a Series C equity closing and $300 million in debt financing, the company said in a statement sent to Bitcoin Magazine. Energy and commodity trading company Mercuria and leading sustainable infrastructure platform Generate Capital co-led Compute North's Series C financing round. National Grid Partners, the venture investment and innovation arm of energy company National Grid, also participated in the round. Financial services and investment management firm Galaxy Digital Partners LLC advised Compute North in its $300 million debt financing deal from Generate Capital, which seeks to empower the company to pursue new projects, including the continued development of new data centers and expanding capacity for further growth. Quote, data centers are a growing part of energy demand, and we're excited to invest with Compute North to build digital infrastructure that can operate sustainably and efficiently while contemplating, or sorry, complementing a more resilient grid. Andrew Marino, Senior Managing Director and Head of Corporate Private Equity at Generate said in a statement, Compute North's data center design allows it to throttle power demand as needed so its facilities can provide better stability to local grids, onboarding more renewable energy sources. Compute North last year formed multiple partnerships with public Bitcoin miners after it secured $25 million in debt financing and equity in February to accommodate growing demand for its data and co-location services. It helped NASDAQ listed BitDigital expand its operations in North America in April, formed an agreement with Marathon Digital Holding to house 70,000 of the mining machines in May, which was later expanded to accommodate 30,000 extra rigs and in October teamed up with Atlas Mining. Compute North said it keeps expanding its footprint in North America with the development of new facilities in Nebraska, North Carolina, and Texas as it works, quote, to accelerate the energy transition and evolve the data center market. Okay, so mining will not stop doesn't matter what the price is doing. These people do not care. And it's not because they're idiots. They're going for the gold because they know what's going to happen. Now, even I am sitting here going, when, when, oh my God, when, but you know, we've got to, we've, we've, we've got to be a little bit more patient. Core Scientific has mined over a thousand Bitcoin for the second straight month. Wow, Nomsios again for Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, Public Bitcoin miner Core Scientific produced 1,077 BTC last month, a 315% increase year over year as its self mining fleet reached 75,000 Bitcoin mining rigs, outputting 7.5. 
exahashes per second in hash rate capacity. Guys, that's a sizable chunk of the total hash rate for the Bitcoin mining world. Just saying. Core Scientific's production increased slightly from December when it mined 1,044 Bitcoin. The miner deposited all of the Bitcoin it mined in, Jan in January into custody. It held 6,373 Bitcoin as of January 31st, which is up from 5,296 uh, BTC in the previous month. In addition to operating its own mining farms, Core Scientific also provided hosting services to a group of customers that amount to 7.1 exahashes per second in total. The miners operate over 14 exahashes per second of hash rate capacity. Core Scientific mined more than 1,000 Bitcoin for the second month in a row, despite having powered down its mining operations once a week on average during January in response to weather conditions that put a strain on the grids used by the miner, CEO Mike Levitt said in a statement on Monday. Quote, we are committed to curtailing mining activities to ensure the stability and performance of the electrical grids in our communities. Big Bitcoin miners often cooperate with state power grids to ensure a balance between supply and demand by being a baseload consumer that guarantees a stable demand for the grid's energy. However, when an energy producer's output is unable to match energy demand, miners often shut down part or all of their operations to ensure a stable grid. Earlier this month, publicly listed Bitcoin miner Riot Blockchain shut down most of its operations in Texas to save power as cold weather put up the biggest test of the state's power grid since last year's blackouts, according to Bloomberg. Core Scientific said its electrical curtailments in January amounted to over 1,100 megawatt hours as it powered down a portion of its operations on four separate occasions. So, yeah, that's just part of what's going to be the new energy system. You got to get used to it. There's opportunities all over the place. Now, uh, how Bitcoin exchange outflows rose in January, Dylan LeClaire, Sam Rule for Bitcoin Magazine. As we've discussed in previous daily dives, March 2020 was a significant catalyst and turning point for Bitcoin. We can see that in the behavior of exchange balances, which have shown consistent net outflow over the last two years, the most recent periods of significant inflows were right before both 2021 Bitcoin local price tops. These tops in April and November coincided with the previous month showing net exchange inflows of Bitcoin in both March and October. January was the largest outflow month since September 2021. Keeping an eye on exchange flow dynamics can help us track demand sentiment and when that is fundamentally changing for market participants. The 90-day cumulative exchange flow has consistently moved with price over the last year. In the chart, the right-hand side axis is reversed to show how a decreasing net exchange flow correlates with rising price and vice versa. And of course, the chart shows just that. When what we've seen in January is a turning point in the 90-day cumulative net flow with more Bitcoin flowing out of exchanges. This signals increased buying demand over the last month and we've seen Bitcoin price follow suit over the last few days. This is happening while we're also seeing accumulation trends in long-term hodlers and whales over the last few weeks. Looking at the 30-day change in exchange balances, we've seen a strong deceleration over the last two weeks. Another way to view exchange volume dynamics is to look at the net 
exchange flow relative to estimates for adjusted supply. Adjusted supply removes coins that haven't moved in seven years, which is an assumption to account for Satoshi's coins and lost coins. Current adjusted supply is approximately 15.58 million Bitcoin, 82.2% of the circulating supply. So the question becomes, there's gonna be a lot of movement on those 90,000 Bitcoin from the Bitcoin or from the Bitfinex hack. Is that gonna be part of these calculations as these things move around? Because they are going to be moving around. They've been moving around. How does that, I mean, how? I'm just saying, how do you how do you jive, jive with that kind of thing? So in in either event, it's going to be in the Bitfinex coins are going to be a story to watch, and I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon. But those coins belong to Bitfinex. Those coins are going to go back to Bitfinex. There is the only way that the United States government seizes those coins and refuses to give the property back to its rightful owner, which is Bitfinex, is to, I, I mean, the amount of shit that the, the amount of shit rolling downhill, even on the United States government would be so immense. Like I said, the Department of Justice is probably already going, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Let's just get this shit back to Bitfinex. Like I said, it's going to be a hell of a story. Let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities of flammable liquids are pretty much up except for natural gas that's taking it on the chin again. West Texas Intermediate up uh, one fifth or no, just flipped over one quarter of a point to $89.59. Brenton North Sea up a half point, $91.19. Natural gas down over 5% to $4.03 per thousand cubic feet. Uh, gasoline is up over half a percent to $2.64 a gallon. All the shiny metal rocks are gleaming today. Gold up a fifth of a point to $1,831. Silver is up 0.09. Platinum is up a quarter. Copper rallying 1.76% to the upside. Palladium likewise up 1.27% to the upside. Ag futures are mostly up. We got a couple of losers today. The biggest one is rice, which is down a third of a point. But the biggest winner, coffee, 2.7% to the upside, followed by chocolate, 2.6% to the upside, followed by sugar, just under two points to the upside. The Dow going to be up 0.8%. S&P up 1.17%. NASDAQ 1.2% to the upside. S&P mini, one and a half points to the upside. Fuck them all, real money, $44,027 with 256,000 Bitcoin transactions made in the last 24 hours. That is 10,672 transactions every hour on the hour. 910,747 BTC being sent in the last 24 hours. That's 38,000 BTC every hour on the hour with 3.56 BTC is the average transaction value. The median transaction value 0.015 BTC or $669.55. Block times are low, 11 minutes and 10 seconds. No, lot low, they're high. That's a full one minute and 10 second over the normal 10 minute block time. 
0.1 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis, 14 BTC taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours, a 7.37% rise in hash rate brings us up to 197.53 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator is Doge at 15.9 United States pennies. 5,500 transactions waiting on 12 blocks to clear. $835.7 billion in market capitalization is just under 7% of gold's market cap. We can now buy 24 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,952,910 and a quarter of. Total capacity of the Lightning Network is eating up 3,433.6 Bitcoin valued at $151.4 million. And we've now flipped 20,000 nodes, ladies and gentlemen. 20,006 to be exact, sporting 85,937 payment channels, 76.3% of all of that shit being run over Tor, 2,619.43 BTC is in the Tor side of the Lightning Network and being run over 11,585 Tor Lightning nodes, or at least the ones that we can see. That's going to do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. We got to talk about the whole Russia thing again. Apparently, the, everything's blown up about Russia's stance on Bitcoin and the wider crypto world. Okay, so Andrew Asmakov has it from Decrypt.co. Russia expected to regulate crypto like foreign currencies as per a report. Let's find out more. The Russian government and the country's central bank have reached an agreement on how to regulate Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies in a plan to recognize digital assets as a form of currency. Now, before I continue, let's make sure that we understand this was written today, all right, February the 9th, 2022. This isn't an old article. I've made that mistake before, and I, I please forgive me if I've screwed you up that way. This, however, is fresh off the printers. According to a document published on the Russian government official website on Tuesday night, a draft law is expected to be introduced by February the 18th. Quote, the circulation of such financial assets will be regulated by the state with strict obligations for all participants in the professional market and an emphasis on protecting the rights of ordinary investors, reads the document. You know how I read that? Qualified investors only. The ordinary investors are gonna be left out. I guarantee it, at least at, least at first, and they'll have to buy it on the black market. But no, 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 no. It's going to be the same shit that we always see. The oligarchs will be able to buy it. All their little rich friends will be able to buy it. And the ordinary investor, not unless you got a million rubles. Well, actually a million dollars, however many rubles that is, which is probably quite a bit considering that their currency sucks ass. According to the local business publication, uh, Commissant, the new legislation would bring cryptocurrencies into the same regulatory framework as foreign currencies. However, it would require the Russian government to pass new laws and directives, something that could happen as early as the second half of 2022 or early 2023. 
The move comes several weeks after the Bank of Russia proposed a full ban on cryptocurrencies, an initiative that was met with strong opposition from the country's finance ministry. The proposal suggests that cryptocurrency purchases in Russia must be conducted only through licensed and locally registered companies with full user identification. In other words, the new legislation will allow banks to operate as intermediaries between users and crypto trading platforms. Exchanges and peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces offering crypto trading services will also have to register as legal entities in Russia, which means opening accounts with authorized banks and satisfying all of the requirements normally applied to traditional financial institutions. In addition, the new law will oblige foreign crypto exchanges to set up a separate office in Russia. Both local and foreign companies will have to check transactions for signs of illegal activity and to keep user transaction data for at least five years. Well, that's going to be easy enough. Should the draft law be adopted? All cryptocurrency transactions over 600,000 rubles, or $8,000 US, would have to be declared with the Federal Taxation Service. Failure to do so would be considered a criminal act. Remarkably, the proposal suggests that banks working with crypto exchanges would not be able to use blockchain analytics tools offered by companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic. That is interesting. Instead, they'll have to use the tracking tool developed by Russia's Federal Finance Monitoring Service. Oh, Lord have mercy, they're going to roll their own. Holy shit, that's going to be amazing. Per the document, this tool called the Transparent Blockchain can help identify owners of cryptocurrency wallets and is capable of collecting information from the dark net, identifying patterns of illegal use of digital assets. Oh, bullshit. You're going to roll your own analytics device when you've got 12 companies out there that have been doing it for five fucking years. This is the state of government at this point. Is it is like, I don't know, man, rolling your own on something like this is just going to get a lot of innocent people in trouble because they're going to be making serious, serious, serious errors. You know, reinventing the wheel in this day and age is one of the worst things that you can do, but Russia's going to do Russia, so whatever. Bitcoin dated futures with physical settlement go live on uh, Econex, E-Q-O-N-E-X, pronounce it however the hell you want, Cointelegraph, Helen Parts. The NASDAQ-listed digital assets financial company, Econex, however you pronounce it, has launched a new type of Bitcoin investment product, a BTC dated futures contract with a physical settlement. Announcing the news on Wednesday, Econex explained that its BTC dated futures are denominated in the USD coin, USDC stablecoin, and increase in parallel with the BTC price increase against USDC. In contrast to perpetual futures, which have no maturity limit, dated futures expire at a preset date and time frame like each month or each quarter Econex noted. Quote, any position in a perpetual future stays open until the trader decides, decides to close the trade by executing an offsetting trade or until the trade gets liquidated by Econex, the firm added. According to the announcement, the Econex BTC dated futures contract expires at 8 a.m. UTC on the final Friday of the expiry month. 
with physical settlement occurring automatically on the expiry date. Users can trade the new BTC futures contract with leverage. Of course, of course. Why, why wouldn't you do leverage? I hope it's 150X. Econex also expects to introduce dated futures for additional cryptocurrencies, including uh, shitcoin number one in the coming months. Econex's interim CEO, Andrew Eldon, pointed out that there is still a gap in the exchange marketplace to better serve traders who are looking for safe access to products and strategies from traditional finance to exploit and hedge against the volatility of crypto market trading, end quote. Further quote, we are removing the barriers to entry by delivering a regulated crypto exchange and by adding institutional grade products to our customers' toolkits, Eldon said. The news comes soon after Econex announced that it was engaged in strategic discussions with third parties, including the evaluation of merger or takeover options in December of 2021. The news came in conjunction with the firm appointing Eldon as interim CEO, replacing former CEO Richard Byworth. So yet another derivative product, at least, at least it's physical settlement. And it's not perpetual. It's, I think it's better than what we have on the ETFs, futures, derivatives, things that we got floating around right now. But I'm going to say not by much. Still looking for that spot ETF. Do we need it? No. Did we need ETF futures stuff? No. Bitcoin doesn't need any of this. The only things that the, that the ETF perpetual futures shit actually allows for is market manipulation. That's my opinion. I, if you're yelling at me, I get it. I understand. If you want to yell at me on Twitter, I, I can take it. I got a thicker skin than most people realize. But it is my opinion that the futures ETF stuff for Bitcoin is simply a tool to be used to keep the price down, which is why they came out first and not the spot. Okay. I think that this is, they're all, all of them are prepping to jump in and buy like a son of a bitch, but they can't do it yet. They are not in a position, the, the institutional players, aside from just a very, very few that are forward thinking, the majority of Wall Street and the majority of whatever the street's name it is in fucking London uh, that is has something to do with the financial world, Singapore, Taiwan, all these guys, they're not ready yet. So they gave them futures to keep the price down before they got all their ducks in a row and are able to buy spot. That's what I think is happening. And that's why we're seeing this weird price depression amidst all this news of all these institute, like KPMG buying shit yesterday should have reflected a much larger move upwards in the price of BTC. It's a top four accounting firm. It's global. It's not just international. They have offices in every freaking country in the world, at least every country of note. They may not be in Zimbabwe, but they're, well, actually Zimbabwe is a pretty, pretty decent. There's probably somewhere on the continent of Africa exists a country that KPMG does not have a fucking office in. Outside of a few countries like that, KPMG is everywhere in the world. They do accounting for all these companies. They announced that they bought Bitcoin and we get eh, a bump for ants. That's what we got. 
I think this is market manipulation, and I think they're doing it because they're like, oh, shit, this isn't going away. We haven't gotten in. Somehow or another, the way that our rules and regulations and all the shit that we have to follow, whether internally or externally, are set up in a way that we can't actually buy it, we need to buy it, and we can't get it because of these regulations. What are we going to do? And here comes along fucking futures trading. No, we'll just use the derivatives of Bitcoin price to keep the price suppressed until we get enough shit changed that we can legally buy this crap and not have the DOJ, the FTC, or any other idiot breathing down our fucking necks. That's what I think has been happening. But only time will tell. Bitcoinnews.com, it's a newer publication that I've found, so I'm going to try it out today. Uh, Can Bitcoin compete with Apple's new tap to pay feature? I don't know. We'll find out. Is there an author? I don't see one. No, this is just from Bitcoin News. Uh, Apple has announced that they will release a new tap to pay feature for the iPhone. This innovation would transform the smartphone into a contactless payment terminal. Merchants will be able to unlock contractless payment acceptance using a supporting iOS app once tap to pay on iPhone debuts. The customers will be asked to hold their iPhone or Apple Watch near the merchant's phone during checkout, and the payment will be made securely via NFC technology. Accepting contactless payments does not necessitate any additional hardware. Customers' payment data is likewise protected bullshit with tap to pay on iPhone, according to Apple, and all transactions performed through the services are encrypted. We have to bear in mind that new technology has to be better and easier than the predecessor in order to be widely adopted. But does Bitcoin have to be better and easier than Apple's tap to pay? What if we imagined that the both, well, what if we imagine that both can benefit from each other? If Apple wants to compete with Cash App, they better hurry to integrate Lightning Network capabilities as well. The open permissionless payments layer of Bitcoin called Lightning Network allows true peer-to-peer transaction with almost no fees and no direct intermediaries. As we could witness with the failed rollout of China's CBDC, mobile payments and digital wallet services like Google Pay, Apple Pay, or Tencent's WeChat Pay could ultimately be of help for Bitcoin. Private payment providers have an interest to stay competitive and profitable, but what happens if a player decides to disrupt the entire industry? Will Apple and Google try to lobby for regulations to ban Bitcoin and Lightning? It would only be a waste of money and harm their own position. The tech giants are competitive despite their enormous market power and could be a great help for Bitcoin on its mission to end the fiat dynasty. A push towards P2P payments and handing every user a POS merchant app all seems to aid privatization of money and disrupting closed source fiat rails. All right, so what do you think about the Apple Pay thing? I I honestly already thought that there was a tap to pay uh, situation going on with Apple. So I don't know, I, maybe that was just a, well, with the iPhone, but I thought maybe that's just a an app that somebody was using. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't use any of that shit right now, so I, I just don't care, but I will have to care later because the NFC game is, is taken off. And if you don't know, Cold Card already has some NFC cards. I don't know if they've come out, 
But they, you know, NFC is going to allow or already allows you to use Bitcoin with tap to pay if the merchant accepts Bitcoin as a tap to pay. In either event, you know, who knows where this is going to go. I don't necessarily count Apple as a friend of Bitcoin because they are so beholden to the fiat legacy system. That's how they got all their money in the first fucking place, right? I mean, it wasn't just them selling a shitload of, and I will admit, very high quality, very usable, very user-friendly products. The iPhone is, I, I could bitch all day long about it, but it's a hell of a tool. I don't like the tracking. I don't like any of that shit, but it's a hell of a tool. The, you know, Macintosh has been a rock solid, you know, operating system for decades. It's, it's, they're good products. I'm not going to bitch about that, but they did not get where they are just selling products. They are close to the money printer and they leverage that money printing and their friends in Congress and their friends in governments around the world. That's how they got where they are. That's how Elon Musk became the, the richest man on the face of the planet. He sure as shit didn't sell as, enough products to do it. I'm sorry, but he didn't. Tesla may be a good car. I don't know. I've never been in one. I don't give a shit. I mean, you still have to burn oil to be able to, to power that son of a bitch up. In either event, it just seems to me that these people are not the best friends of Bitcoin yet. Maybe later, maybe never. I don't know. But right now, they are too beholden to the fiat legacy system for them to actually give shit one about anything about how Bitcoin is going to dismantle the very thing that they depend on. Do not look at Tim Apple as somebody who's going to be a friend of Bitcoin again, at least not in the near future. Let's get on with this one. Do, 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 do. Omkar Godbowl. God, I love that name. Out of Coindesk. <clears throat> India's crypto tax may curb expe excessive speculation, but bring institutional demand. Let's find out what's going on in India because I'm sure they will flip-flop later on. The Indian crypto market may remain insulated from the next meme token frenzy as a result of the recently proposed tax on virtual currency transactions. Earlier this week, Finance Minister Nirmala Sitharaman announced that profits from the sale of virtual assets would be taxed at a flat rate of 30% without any deductions or exemptions. The rate is on par with the highest income tax band, which applies to individuals earning more than 1.5 million rupees, which is $20,000 a year U.S. The government also introduced a 1% tax deducted at source on cryptocurrency trading. Observers said the steep tax rate might deter the gambling and excess speculation seen during the bull market frenzy of April, October, and early November last year. Quote, we believe the taxation structure introduced by the government will certainly discourage speculators and punters. Uh, Saraj Ramasharma, a chartered accountant and member of the founding team of Mumbai-based crypto asset management firm Min. Ting M, Minting M. Okay, these some of these names, I swear. While TDS might help the government keep a tab on money flows, it could pose a problem for short-term traders. Quote, 1% TDS by government is a tactical move to get records of all transactions, which would bring exchanges and investors under better compliance. However, the TDS amount 
could turn out to be very high for frequent traders, said Ravi Jain, co-founder of Blostom Fintech. High frequency trading involves using powerful algorithms to conduct a large number of transactions in fractions of a second. Adita Singh, a co-founder of Crypto India, said 1% TDS is too much, and with enough trades, an entity's initial account capital would be significantly depleted. Quote, with 1% TDS, a trader with an initial account balance of uh, 100,000 INR can lose 10% of his money in just 11 transactions. Indian rupees is INR, sorry, sorry just saying. Uh, 10% of his money in just 11 transactions, assuming these trades didn't generate profit and each transaction involved complete account balance, Singh noted in a Twitter chat. Rajat Lwani, a SHIB holder and moderator of Shiba Inu India Official, a telegram group with more than 2,000 India-based retail investors who were getting fucking fleeced, said that the new tax structure is less of a concern for long-term holders. Most people who are unhappy right now are day traders. They book pretty percentage profits, and this wouldn't go well with them, Lawani told Coindesk. People holding for the long term will slightly be less worried than the day traders. During the height of the meme token frenzy in October and early November, SHIB pairs accounted for nearly 50% of daily trading volume on Wearsix, a Binance-backed exchange based in Mumbai and other platforms serving Indian-based clients. At the time, investors from smaller cities and semi-urban and rural areas were training, trading SHIB in a bid to make big profits in a short period. The frenzy has cooled, however, and SHIB has crashed 75% from its October peak. With the new tax structure, retail investors are likely to think twice before gambling during a meme token frenzy. While several publicly listed companies in the U.S. have added Bitcoin to their balance sheets, the Indian corporate world has stayed on the sidelines, perhaps due to regulatory uncertainty. Well, that might change now. Quote, after clarity on taxation, we note that a lot of Indian institutions would look favorably at investing balance sheet money into the crypto markets, minting M's said. While institutional investors dislike regulatory ambiguity and uncertainty, the recent announcement of tax rules has cleared the air to some extent. The move also indicates that the government may be warming up to the crypto sector and might be set to regulate top cryptocurrencies like investment assets. Last year, the minority, ah, minority, no, last year, the Ministry of Corporate Affairs asked all India-based companies to mandatorily disclose any dealings in cryptocurrency or virtual currency on their balance sheets. The move was widely hailed as the first step towards regulating the crypto markets. So there you go. <clears throat> yeah, uh, the tax regulations in India are probably not going to hold. I fully expect in six months for them to flip-flop again for the 15th time and say that they're banning all cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency trading, any transactions with cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin. I fully expect it. I will not be surprised when that happens because India has no idea how to make a decision and stick with it. It's like it's impossible for these people. I just don't get it. Whatever, John, or rather Jeff John Roberts, has the following from decrypt.co. Lawmaker takes aim at Puerto Rico as crypto tax haven. 
the thieves are on the move. Stories about crypto millionaires decamping to Puerto Rico have become commonplace in recent years. The island's attraction lies in its sandy beaches, mild climate, and its reputation as a place for U.S. residents to avoid paying taxes. But not everyone is happy about this. On Tuesday, Brooklyn lawmaker Nydia Velasquez, who's a Democrat from New York, complained that Puerto Rico has become a haven for rich crypto speculators from the mainland and asked a Treasury Department official if Congress could help go after crypto investors trying to use Puerto Rico as a tax shelter. Velasquez comments came during a hearing of the House Financial Services Committee, which was examining the broader topic of stablecoins. The Congresswoman is originally from Puerto Rico and like many who live in her New York City district remain, have maintained strong ties with the island. Her remarks elicited a strong reaction on Twitter where many applauded her desire to go after people they portrayed as wealthy and unwanted interlopers. One attorney with a Puerto Rican flag in his profile complained of a white supremacist fantasy of Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. Oh my God. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Others offered more nuanced takes, uh, pointing out that the law attracting millionaires to Puerto Rico doesn't favor only crypto holders, but those looking for a tax shelter in general. Yes, it's been that way for decades. The law in question allows investors to claim no tax on capital gains, a huge potential benefit for Americans who live on the mainland and can face federal capital gains rates as high as 37%. But as some pointed out, taking advantage of the law involves more than just turning up in Puerto Rico. Others have voiced similar cautions. In a recent essay, a Boston law firm points out that simply owning property in Puerto Rico is not enough to claim the tax exemptions and that, in any case, the law only applies to capital gains earned after a person moves to the island, meaning that someone who moved there in January would not be able to avoid taxes on crypto profits accrued during the boom of 2021. Meanwhile, Puerto Rico's governor approved a 2020 law that makes applying for tax exemption more expensive. It's unclear if Velasquez's comments will have any impact on U.S. or Puerto Rico tax policy, especially at the focus of Tuesday's hearing did not relate to Puerto Rico. But it could serve to warn wealthy crypto investors that the tax benefit may not exist forever and that many on the island may not want them there in the first place. Who knows? But yeah, Puerto Rico's dudes, I mean, this has been going on for decades. And not just in crypto, it started out a long time ago with corporations, you know, and, and rich individuals, you know, claiming, you know, claiming a flag of Puerto Rico and being able to take a ta major tax exemptions. Good. Taxation is theft. Any loophole that I can find to not have to pay your ass taxes so you can go bomb brown people at a wedding halfway across the world that didn't do jack shit to anybody is a loophole that I'm going to try to use. I will use anything that I can to stop the flow of money from my pockets to any government, much less the federal government of the United States. Fuck these people. All they are interested in doing is killing people if they're not making them poor. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Dad says jokes. I was really struggling to get my wife's attention. So I sat down on the sofa and looked comfortable. That did the trick.
If you want to support this show, please do so using Podcasting 2.0. Get in the know. You got to understand how to do this shit anyway. I mean, come on. The, the ability for you to stream me Satoshis directly to my lightning node without anybody in the way while I stream you, well, while you're listening to this podcast is an amazing, amazing future and, well, present and future development. And why do I say future? Because within five and 10 years, everything is going to be run this way. There's not going to be such a thing as a subscription. You're going to tune into somebody you like to listen to, or you're going to use a piece of software that you want to use, but you don't use it all the time. You're going to watch, I don't know, Clarkson's farm, and you're going to pay the creators and the producers and the people and the, the staff and the people that actually make the thing that you're using, you're going to pay them directly with the lightning network or maybe a layer three or a layer four technology on top of Bitcoin. Okay. That's going to happen. It's a good idea to figure out how that happens while it's in its infancy. I mean, people say raising a child is 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 hard and difficult, and it is, but it doesn't it's not difficult at first. All you're really doing is losing some sleep and having to change diapers and making sure that you don't drop the baby and that the baby gets fed. Those are like four things. You only got to do four things when, when the baby is an infant. It's not until they start walking around that shit gets really interesting and you really got to be aware of what's going on, right? I mean, things get really dangerous when they're crawling and walking and toddling and all that kind of shit. And then they get to be like they go through twelve, you know, 11, 12, 13, and all, all hell breaks loose. But while they're an infant, there are absolutely a very few things that you have to do and do correctly. Value for value, the ability for you to stream Satoshis to my lightning node while you're listening to this is in its infancy. It is not really being used at scale anywhere else. And right now we have like 25 podcasting 2.0 enabled apps. I'd say that we're in the process of scaling but it's not really being used yet for video streaming. It certainly is not being used for video streaming from platforms such as Amazon Prime and shit like that, but it will, and it'll happen within five to 10 years. Last, the very last people that are going to figure this out are going to be like Adobe. And they will finally figure out that nobody wants to pay them 60 bucks a month to use Photoshop, because that's what it costs for just Photoshop. You got to pay them 60 bucks a month because they're not allowing you to just buy the, the, the damn software anymore. No. And when their competitors start offering the ability for you to pay with Lightning Network as you use their product, but not when you're not using their product, then people like Adobe will fall in line and Amazon and Netflix and everybody. And if you already know how this shit works now, then you are in a much better position to be able to use it later in the future. So if you don't, if you still just absolutely feel uncomfortable with lightning wallets and all that kind of stuff, then my Patreon is always there for fiat donations 
If you want to support this show, it is Bitcoin and Podcast on Patreon. I do appreciate all of the patrons that I have so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of the support that you've lended me, and I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.